All right, today I'm joined with Professor um, Suwanda. Um, you got your PhD from Emory, right? That is correct. You want to give us just a little intro to who you are? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, so um, my name is Umay Suwanda. I'm a professor of psychological sciences at the University of Connecticut. Um, and I am a uh, developmental psychologist. Uh, a lot of my research focuses on um, early, meaning kind of infant and toddlerhood, uh, their early cognitive and language development. Um, and yeah, I guess that's that's a very brief intro. Yeah. But so, like, what? Why did you get into like that age group of infant to toddlers? Like, what got you into researching? that age group more? Yeah, so um, I think it was a mixture of things, you know, a, a bunch of things happened throughout my career that got me there. But I'll be honest, I think that, you know, when I first took a psychology course, it was my sophomore year of college. Um, you know, I went to school in uh, at Wesleyan University, which is just down the road from stores in Middletown. And um, I took a intro to psych course, and I remember I remember when we were on the chapter of language, just being really um, interested by the topic. I remember kind of hearing about how how you know language was this kind of interesting phenomena where you often observe something opposite to a lot of other things, which is that you know young children tend to Kind of outperform uh, adults in acquiring language and attaining kind of native level um, fluency. And so that just kind of sparked my interest as a phenomena. Language seemed to be really interesting. And um, um, I remember in that class specifically, you know, we actually kind of went into a little bit on infant speech perception and how the infant ear is somehow kind of you know, tuned in a, in a particular way to, to be, um, uh, you know, more adaptive and, and adaptable to acquiring um, a large range of languages. And I thought that that was really interesting. And then I just kind of followed that, that, um, that initial interest, initial spark um, over my career. I spent a summer in college working in um, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison um, in a research program that didn't focus on early infants, but that nonetheless focused on uh, the language abilities of young children and who are just beginning to read. And that got me a little bit more interested in it. And then I spent some time between my undergraduate and my graduate days um, I spent some time working as a full-time research assistant in a lab that, that studied very young infants and their just general cognitive abilities. We were actually interested in that lab. Um, uh, this is the lab of Elizabeth Brannon, who was at the time at Duke University. And she was really interested in kind of the origins of human number perception. And so she actually studied it from, from two different interesting and complementary angles. One was an evolutionary perspective where she actually studied non-human animals and their abilities to do very simple number judgments. Like, you know, is this array of, you know, pictures on, 
or, or dots um, on your left, is it more, are there more dots than this picture on your right? Or, you know, are there more pictures of carrots on the left or more pictures on the right? Very, very simple kind of number abilities and lo and behold, you know, these, these, these monkeys, these um, um, lemurs were, were actually quite able to do that kind of basic number perception. And she also had a baby lab, you know, located separately, um, where we brought in, brought in kids, you know, from six months, nine months, and we just kind of studied how they perceive um, numeracy. You know, can they tell the difference between, you know, three objects versus two objects? Does that distinction matter to them? Um, and so we studied that in a few different, so um, we did that and I think that that kind of just got me interested in this idea of, of studying very early infancy and, um, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, you know the, the, the question of kind of like where it starts is a really, is, is one a really interesting phenomena and then, you know, by studying younger and younger, you're, you're, by definition, you're in a position to, to study how things grow and how things develop and how things change more, right? And so that was a, kind of another reason why I decided to stick with that um, area. So I think you're on mute, Aaron, sorry. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think infants are cool in that um, they're coming into this like new, this brand new world, all these like new stimuli and like they were just in a place that was dark and like not a bunch of stimuli at all. And now all of a sudden they have all these like sounds and uh, colors and visual and auditory stimuli and like it's like a lot to take in at one time. And I, I assume that's why a lot of times they cry just because they can't handle it all. Um, this overload of new information. And it, I think it's just amazing how they are able to handle this, this flow of stimuli and to organize it in a way to make sense of the world. Um, so is it, I mean, just from a research perspective, and I've read some of your um, research papers that you have to like kind of discard some children because of fussiness and like maybe like a parent has something to do with it as well. So like how, how hard is it to do research on infants? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's very hard. I mean, you know, obviously I think it, 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 it maybe depends on what you're comparing it to, right? But like let's say within psychology, so much of so much of psychology is done with um, eighteen to twenty-four year old, you know, college undergraduates who are seeking credit for a class, who are seeking extra credit for a course, mm -hmm. um, and you know, in comparison to those participants, you know, it's 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 a world of difference, um, and. It's a very, yeah, it is a very difficult, um, you know, object of study. Uh, but, you know, over the years, there have been, 
you know, I think when maybe this first started, right, research on infancy, say maybe in like the 60s or something like that, and it really kind of um, took off in, in, I would say, the 80s, um, where they started to develop kind of interesting techniques, right, um, realizing that maybe babies aren't as aren't as obedient as like a pigeon or a rat in a lab. Um, and so they weren't so good at, at kind of learning operant behaviors. Um, but, but there were ways that they could demonstrate their knowledge more passively, you know, whether it's through just analyzing their looking behavior um, or analyzing their sucking rate. So if you put a pacifier in a baby's mouth and you and you actually can hook up that pacifier to a system that that tracks the the rate at which the baby is is sucking on the pacifier, it actually tells you something about the level of arousal that the baby is experiencing. Mm. Um, so that, that's a method that is used a lot with very, very young infants in, in, in studying their um, auditory perception. Um, so over the course of the years, there, there have been, you know, interesting attempts to kind of develop methodologies that are more, sent, that are, you know, more um, conducive to studying the, the organism. Um, and then, you know, over the past 10 or so, you know, 10, 20, 25 years, there's been kind of an increase in neuroimaging methods that are yet another way of measuring the baby's, a baby's knowledge, a baby's thought processes, a baby's attentional patterns, um, what they're interested in and what they like, um, by really measuring just kind of uh, passively their uh, neuroimaging patterns. Um, and so, Yes, it's hard. Um, there continue to be kind of developments in how you could study an organism like a baby. Um, and I think the field is the field is also changing a little bit um, in the sense that more and more these days, there are more and more of, the, of these um, of these efforts to actually combine data sets, right? So not only is one lab doing a study, but actually multiple labs are trying to do the same study. And um, that way you're kind of crowdsourcing a particular research question rather than actually doing it on your own. And why is that a benefit? Well, now all of a sudden you are, you know, instead of studying the behavior of say 20 infants, now you're studying the behavior of 200 infants. And so therefore, if, you know, one baby fusses out in your sample of 20, sometimes you're nervous about whether or not that is, whether or not your, what you're studying is really something that is um, generalizable, right? Um, but now all of a sudden, if you have, you know, two or three infants fussing out in a sample of 200, um, then you become more and more confident about what it is that you're studying. Have you done any research on um, like, babies that are raised in a like a bilingual household and how that kind of affects their um, performance on certain types of tests? You know, I, I personally have not. It's, it's um, a question that many 
many people have. And so there's a lot of interest in that. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly kind of read a lot of studies about that. Um, and it turns out that actually it's a little bit of a, um, it's a little bit of a controversial area. So I would say that the dominant, the, the dominant view is that if you were to measure kind of older people, right? So mm -hmm. we're talking about, you know, uh, people my age or people your age or even people older. Okay. Research seems to suggest that there is this benefit of, of um, bilingualism. Um, you know, the way that kind of dealing with multi-lang multiple languages just kind of widers your brain is in such a way that that um, has its benefits. Um, that finding, it turns out, is not always as strong as some studies suggest, um, sometimes is not there. Um, sometimes, and this is actually one interesting finding, is that is that it's harder to publish research when you observe no difference between two groups, mm, right? Yeah. Because this is a situation of a, of a null result. And so as a result, um, some have even argued that the bilingualism phenomena is in part kind of like a file drawer problem where all the research that shows an advantage to bilingualism gets published. All of the research that shows that no difference between two um, between bilinguals and monolinguals um, can't get published, right? right? And so there's a disproportionate number of studies that have found differences in the literature compared to studies that haven't found differences. Mm. Um, and so that's just kind of like one interesting thing to just kind of think about. But I think what might be intuitive is you know, it's hard to kind of group bilinguals and monolinguals. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's so much variation within groups that that even that within group variation could account for how messy that that data is. Mm -hmm. um, and really, in a lot of times, how messy data comparing any two groups are. Right? It really. The, the devil is in the details in the sense of like, well, how is it that you're, you're um, um, how is it that you are defining bilingualism, right? Like does taking two classes of Spanish in high school count? Um, do you need to have been exposed to, to both languages from very early on? Um, um, you know, is the, is the way you get, you get raised or is the way you get exposed to the second language, whether it's in the classroom versus, you know, immersed, um, is yet another problem. Uh, so that was a little bit of a lengthy answer, but I think that, um, there is, you know, there's certainly data to suggest that, that, you know, bilinguals zag, whereas monolinguals zig, um, but, um, there's also some evidence to suggest that that's a hard, you know, a really difficult question to grapple with.
I good? I don't know why that keeps happening. Okay, so um, I read some of your research about um, how infants could um, discriminate time over um, between six to 10 months, I think. Um, six months old compared to 10 months old and um, how they were able to discriminate time. So can you talk a little bit about what kind of research you did there and what you found? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, we're, 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 we're digging, digging back here. Um, so this would have been the research that we conducted or research I conducted while I was in that lab I described earlier um, between my undergrad and graduate years um, where we were interested in infants time perception and the reason why we were kind of interested in infant time perception at the time at the time was partly because we were really interested in how infants process information about magnitude more generally, right? And so, um, you know, if you think about kind of different types of magnitudes, you know, number is one of them, right? You can kind of say this has more than that. Um, just, you know, amount is another one, right? There's, there's like more sand versus less sand. Um, and time is another one, right? So time is, time is another thing that we kind of naturally kind of quantify. So, you know, uh, something is longer versus shorter. Um, and what we were interested in is, one, whether infants, at, at what point, how infants' sensitivity to different kind of intervals um, were. But we were really interested in it because we were interested in whether or not the development of how you perceive time actually emerges kind of at the same uh, point in development as your ability to perceive differences in quantity, in differences in number, in differences in size, and things like that, right? And so the, the idea here is that where does our ability to distinguish these quantities come from? Does it come from, you know, very, very specific types of knowledge, right? Like you have a sense of number, you have a sense of, you know, amount, you have a sense of time or is maybe what happens is actually all of those things kind of rely on, on, on a similar cognitive process, right? Where you just have maybe, you know, um, this is a caricature, but you know, maybe you have something in your head that's just kind of logging information about quantity, you know, structures that are just really designed to, um, be sensitive to changes in, in, in quantity, regardless of what form that takes, right? Regardless of whether or not you're distinguishing quantity in the sense of five, five dots versus three dots versus a, a length of a line versus a short line versus, you know, something that takes a long time versus takes a short time. So that was kind of like why we were interested in, in, in studying that question. And, okay. um, and, and indeed what we found was, or our approach to studying that question was, um, was to see 
the developmental changes in when kids are able to detect time. So well, that makes sense because like you were, you also did research on like the numerical um, dec discrimination and ordinal discrimination as well. So you're kind of like going down the list to see if they are happening at the same time. And, and these are between six months old and 10 months old, right? That is right, yes, okay. yes. And, um, and yeah, so, you know, in a way, and this is, in a, this is something that might not necessarily be intuitive to, um, or, you know, isn't something that's obvious, right? But in a way, there are, there are developmental psychologists who use development as a topic of study, in the sense that you're interested in the development of a species or a development of an organism. And that's, you know, in a very interesting and, and, you know, an idea that covers a lot of um, the research I do, which is the, the process of development is just fascinating. If yeah. you think about, if you think about humans, there are very few actually animals out there that have as protracted a period of development as humans. How, how so? Well, if you think about the, the period of immaturity that humans have, right? Human babies are helpless. You know, they need the people around them to, to feed them, to, you know, they can't move around by themselves. They can't, they can't, they can't do much at all. <laughs> and that is not um, common in, in the animal kingdom. Um, if you were to look at a lot of species, right? Like once they're born, they're already like walking. That's true. It's, and, and so the question of like, why is that the case, right? Why is it the case, mm. that, you know, and, and what benefit does that have? What benefit does it have for a species to have its young, very immature coming into the world, right? Um, you could make the argument that, well, one benefit that that has is you end up with a long period of wiring of the brain, of learning about, about the external world, right? Where you don't have to worry about like, oh, I'm gonna, how am I gonna get fed? How am I gonna get around and stuff like that, right? There are other people taking care of that for you. And in a way, you have this extended period of, of brain development outside the womb where you are, um, 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 where your brain is tuned not just by what happens inside the womb, as you pointed out earlier, but actually by the external stimuli. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so that was a bit of a tangent, but yeah. my point was you could imagine studying development from a, from a perspective of it is the topic of study that I'm interested in. But there are also people out there who study development more from a, think about it as development as a methodology. Of, about understanding the human mind more generally, okay. right? And so you can kind of, in that way, you can think of like, oh, well, neuroimaging, you know, brain imaging uh, technology is a way of studying kind of the neural processes that shape behavior. Um, and development is kind of another type of methodology that can ask interesting questions about like, well, what's the nature of the human mind, right? If you study it in early, in, at the earliest stages of development, like what does that say about the human mind that it looks like this 
at one point, but then looks like this at a different point. Um, and, and going back to your original question or this study that you bring up is that that was kind of the approach that we took to that question about time versus number is our argument or what we thought was true is that because these two things tracked so nicely with development in development, you know, like it's not like number went like this and, and time, you know, happened later on. Right. They actually kind of occurred at very, very similar periods of development suggested to us that there's something really intertwined between them. Right. And, and, and you could imagine studying that question about whether or not two cognitive abilities, whether or not two social abilities are highly intertwined, right. In multiple ways, you could study the neuroimaging of those two abilities and to see whether or not it actually recruits on similar brain regions. You can study whether or not say people individual, um, you could study individual differences and, and see whether or not those two things are kind of highly correlated. But you can also study how they kind of change over the de over development and over the time course of development as another window into whether or not two things are highly, highly connected. So you did research on time discrimination, numerical discrimination, and ordinal discrimination. And across those three um, experiments, um, was there a correlation or did they share things in common? Yes, um, they did. And so um, um, not necessarily in those specific studies that you mentioned, because actually those specific studies get at slightly different issues. But to answer your question most directly, um, um, yes, in the, sense, in the sense of how sensitive infants were to various quantities. So you can measure the sensitivity of your, your judgments um, by analyzing, you know, how small of a difference do you need in order for you to perceive there to be a difference, mm -hmm. right? And humans judgment, you know, human adults are like of a certain range and human infants obviously are, of, are a much larger range, right? So if you were yeah. to show... If you were to show, I think, like a six-month-old, um, at the time at least, maybe things have changed since I kind of left the field um, or left that area of research. Um, at the time at least, you know, if they, were to sh if they were shown like eight dots over and over and over and over again, and then you like just switched it up and you showed them 10 dots, they couldn't care less. You know, they did not, think, <laughs> they did not see those things as being like different at all. Um, whereas, you know, if you were to show that to like a college student, they would pick that up. They'd be like, oh, something changed. Um, so infants had a much smaller range um, or larger range. Larger like threshold. Yeah. Uh, uh, or, or bandwidth that they would consider to be the same. And what we found was that the, the bandwidth was, was comparable in these different domains, right? So in number, it, it was like a particular ratio, you know, they, they, they measure this in like a ratio or um, where it's like a two to three ratio, right? So, you know, four versus six that mm -hmm. they were able to do versus, and okay. they also do like eight versus 
12 or that that's what they couldn't do but they could do like a one to two ratio whether you showed them 10 and 15 or eight and eight sorry 10 and 20 or eight yeah. and 16 um that they could do that and then that that kind of increased that ability or that ratio decreased as kids got older um and what we found was that essentially the six-month-olds behaved similarly in the number task as they did in the time task, and then 10-month-olds behave similarly in both tasks as well. Okay, so um, one thing that I thought was interesting was in that numerical discrimination, as you said, there's like one to two ratio or two to three ratio, um, but you also did it to where like, you would increase the area of mm -hmm. the objects being shown um, as there were more of them, right? Um, so other I other way around. Other way around. So if there were less, oh, so it would have the same area in the picture, but right. there would just be less objects rather than having. I don't know. Ten objects would occupy twenty centimeters of area, and then um 10 objects would also occupy or did i say that 10 objects would occupy 20 centimeters and then 20 objects would still occupy 20. um so i assume that just from like whenever i look at things um i feel like area and just how big something is a, is a big indicator to i guess change and i and i feel like infants at this age are just like they're not counting these things but they're just trying to see the changes as you said the threshold between changing um between things um so what did you kind of find from just mess messing with the area or keeping the area the same but changing the number of objects that you showed them yeah so um sorry i just want to make a note of something i'll, I'll kind of end with but yeah. um so this is a tricky problem when you're studying something like quantity, because, you know, I think when we were studying it, we were really interested in their numerical perception. But obviously, you know, numbers out there in the world don't, aren't, number is not a dimension that occurs in isolation, in the sense that if you were a, if you were a, if you were a monkey and you saw like five predators, right? Well, there are also kind of, there's also kind of just like a lot more tigerness, you know, there's like a difference in just overall amount of stuff. Not necessarily that there are five, you know, five isn't so much kind of the relevant dimension there, right? Um, likewise, as, as you kind of pointed out, right? Like five buildings is, you know, not only more buildings but also probably occupy more of a city's block right so things don't tend to go to things um different quantities tend to go together a lot and um as a result from a from a experimental perspective or experimentalist perspective that's like a nuisance you know, in terms of in terms of if we were really interested in if infants had kind of this perception of number, well, how could you kind of really demonstrate it? Because in most cases, you can't really distinguish between are they perceiving the number or are they perceiving something about the area? Right. Yeah. Right. 
And so the reason why in a lot of these studies, what you need to do is you need to keep one of the dimensions constant, whereas you're varying the other one. It's essentially to ask the question, are they really sensitive to the number of it, to the number, or is it something that correlates with number, right? Mm, that, they're, yeah. that they're highly sensitive to. And so um, I think it is a pretty interesting finding that when you do control for it, right, you do find that people um, are, or that infants are able to pick out number information. Um, in one of my, in one of the studies that I did while at Duke, uh, we found that actually when you don't do that, so when you let the two dimensions co-vary, you observe much stronger discrimination, which is, you know, maybe, maybe expected, right? But yeah. the idea there is when you have dimensions kind of going together, infants are better and have, you know, a better sensitivity in a way because like, you have multiple, they have like multiple information, multiple cues going for them. Um, so that's kind of like what we found and what we, why we would do something like very, you know, um, control for area while varying number and so on. And just to get at the question you raised earlier, which is that infants aren't counting. Um, I think you're right in, in, the, in the sense that, you know, what we think of as counting being like one, two, three, or four, but the fact that they're picking out, you know, numerical information suggests that they're doing something, you know, that approximates yeah. a nonverbal form of counting, right? That they're sensitive to number in a way that is just separate from their sensitivity to um, just sheer amount of quantity or, you know, space or things like that. Yeah, I think... That's crazy to think about that these six month old and 10 month old babies are able to do to discriminate like that and not really count, but kind of count in a way. Um, you ever do babies ever surprise you and they're like, oh, wow, that that baby's actually kind of smarter than I thought it was going to be. Um. Um, um, babies surprise me in the sense that the literature, you know, is always surprising. I mean, there's, it was once said that kind of, it seems like every, every, every month you open the, the, the journal of science and you learn about something that the babies can do that, you know, you're like just wowed at, right. Or, or wowed about, um, um, and so, yes, so babies do always surprise me. Um, yeah, so there's, you know, I mean, in, in a way, I would say that the kind of thing that, the, the, that babies are kind of sensitive to numerical information is almost like one of the least, less surprising things that people have shown babies to do. And, it, and I should say, right, that it's actually all findings with infants, in part because, and this yeah. goes back to the point you mentioned earlier about the difficulty of babies as an object of study, um, is that no infant study is non-controversial in the sense that, you know, some person will, you know, in the sense that if we showed something about their numerical perception, there will none, there will 
be other researchers pointing out, oh, that wasn't number, that was this other thing that babies were sensitive to, or that was this other thing that infants were picking out in the environment. And so there's always, and, and, and you know, that's in a way the way the science progresses, right? Is yeah. that you're like, okay, maybe an original study that perhaps had some flaws, but then in, in subsequent studies, people realize, oh yeah, you need to control for that space dimension. We're varying number. Mm-hmm. Um, and so things just kind of advance uh, more and more. So one way um, infants learn language um, is through obviously parent interaction. And um, one thing that you kind of looked into is um, the effects of extended discourse um, between the parent and child. Um, so, and we, we tend to do this, I'm sure, I feel like we do this without noticing, but like we kind of, whenever we do talk to an infant, we we kind of just make more simple sentences. We don't really use complex sentences. It's usually specific right to the point sentences. And as and as you said in your research, it's more, um, you, we tend to repeat whatever we're talking about a lot. So it's like, for example, I don't know, like this is a car, a car goes, um, do you wanna, do you want it? Like, do you want the car? And like within three sentences, we repeated the same word three times. Um, so I guess how important is it to have that extended discourse and also, how important is it to kind of simplify our language when we're talking to children rather than talk to them as um, normal adults or older people? Yeah, so this is a really, I think it's a really great question, Aaron. And, um, and I think you can answer that question in two ways. In one way, you could make the argument that it's actually not important at all in the sense that you can demonstrate that you don't need to to talk to babies in that way and they'll learn language you know they'll acquire language um they will you know there will there are cultures out there that that don't talk at all to their infants or you know because it's just like why would you do that you know, yeah. <laughs> they're like these, there are these, um, you know, Western anthropologists who go to these remote areas of the world and ask them, why don't you talk to your babies? And the, the local people would say, why would you do that? You know, you might as well talk to your animals. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And then the anthropologist, the Western anthropologists say like, oh yeah, we do that too. You know? Um, yeah, we do do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so Western people talk to everything um, for whatever reason. So in a very crude sense, no, that stuff is not required for language to like emerge in a kid. But if, if what you're asking about is not about whether or not you acquire language or not, but what you're asking about is whether or not does it speed up language acquisition? Does it account for individual differences and in who learns more versus, you know, who learns more quickly versus who learns less quickly. I think there's fairly compelling evidence to suggest that that stuff does. Um, so, you know, um, the, the way, you know, you, you speak to infants and 
how you use kind of this motherese, right? I think that there's good evidence to suggest that actually the properties of motherese is actually more conducive to learning. Um, if you were to analyze kind of what I was talking about with respect to <clears throat> kind of the extended discourse patterns and the kind of highly repetitiveness of the words, but also the sentence frames, um, um, that all of that also kind of uh, matters. Um, so that's kind of how I would frame it. You know, you can kind of think about language from a perspective of like, what does it mean to acquire language, kind of capital L, would you acquire it or would you not, versus whether or not you would acquire a specific language, you know, meaning that would it help you, would it speed up your process of acquisition if you had all these things going for you versus not? And, and, and the evidence suggests that yes. One, one thing that I was kind of confused on um, reading some of the research is that um, the connection between um, word learning and symbolic gestures. Uh -huh. um, so from what I understand, you, I guess, showed some infants some just novel objects and then you kind of assigned a certain word to it. It's like random words, like a bigot or something like that. Some, some not, it's not an actual word, but some novel word and some novel um, object you kind of um, paired the two. And then you also paired a novel object with a novel gesture. So kind of like sign language in a way, really. Right. And so, and then what did you find in that study? Um, okay, so yeah, so yeah, you know, I, this was like really, really, I mean, I, I think it's actually still kind of popular today, right, where the idea is, you know, do you, can you kind of teach your, should you, you know, teach your young infant some kind of sign language, you know, some- Oh, okay, language. that makes sense. I was taught, yeah, my mom tried to do when I was a kid too. Yeah, and, and you know, I think parents, enjoy it right because it's like yeah. a, a fun activity to do with your infant and and you know the infants pick up on it they like they they produce gestures like more or gestures like you mm -hmm. know up or things like that and um so this line of research actually came out of that phenomena where we were where there was like a lot of interest in whether or not you know would this would this somehow confuse infants right would it lead yeah. them to like actually learn learn language more slowly because they're like too reliant on their gestures or because they're like learning sign language you know babies i shouldn't say sign language because it's not really a sign language but because they're learning baby signs actually um, um slows down their learning of regular language and i think the results suggest that that is not the case you know, um, and so what we showed in our in our research is that actually kind of they're they're kind of complementary systems in the sense that you know in, infants or toddlers turned out to be kind of smart enough to be able to distinguish between them, right? That like if they learned a if they learned a say a gesture for a car that they wouldn't necessarily not be slower to learn the word car. 
because they already had a gesture for it, you know, that they kind of treated those two things as kind of complementary, complementary, um, you know, maybe not, maybe not unlike learning that, oh, you can have a word for ball in both Spanish and English. Um, was it harder to, for the infant to acquire the, the gesture rather than the word? So, so this actually, this is a really interesting question. And this is another kind of important finding from that line of work. And it is, and it kind of goes back a little bit to what we were describing earlier on this issue of using development as a method, not as a, not as a phenomena. So what you find is that it turns out that infants or, and, and these were toddlers. So, um, you know, I think that if you were to talk about like a nine month old, it may be a little bit different than, you know, the 18 month olds that we were studying. But with the 18 month olds, um, it turns out that actually learning words for things and gestures for things are, are just as easy. Um, and in a way, what that suggests is that kind of the general machinery that allows you to just link up, you know, a symbol with something out there in the world is, is much more general, right? Is that there's is that, you know, whether it's a basic associative process or some kind of social learning or whatever, um, that there's that there's just kind of this basic machinery that can be applied to either gestures or either words. But what happens over development is actually you end up observing the case where um, words become better than gestures because you get more and more experience with as you get more and more experience with words, your your ability to like learn gestures um, declines. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, back to the extended discourse um, topic. So another thing that we didn't really talk about with that is, um, so we talked about the more um, verbal approach to it with repeating things, simpler sentences, motherese. Um, but I'll, what about the nonverbal component to that? Yeah, so this is something that we kind of, that was really the focus of that study, which was, there's a lot of focus on language acquisition that tries and understands how different aspects of what children hear and the language they're exposed to, um, what role that plays in the language acquisition process. And so, you know, if you look at kind of the motherese or if you look at the, if you look at extended discourse, you'll observe that there's a lot of repetition, there's a lot of sentence frame structures, there's a lot of syntactic information that is useful. What we kind of pointed out in that, and the point of that study was to say that, well, extended discourse does not occur in isolation. In the sense that if you were to look at kind of the moments in which parents are engaging in the type of, you know, repetitive sentences about the car that you were describing earlier, you know, there's a good amount of chance that what's going on right there is that the kid is like, you know, playing with the toy car mm -hmm. or really, really kind of in tune to the car. And so it raises this question of like, well, how do we know it's not that stuff that is actually what is driving improved learning, right? Yeah. In a way, 
you could think of extended discourse as almost not necessarily as the as the input of learning, but you can think of it as the output of all these other nonverbal processes that are going on, meaning that the parent and kid are engaged in kind of social interaction and joint attention together, that the that the kid is kind of highly um, in tune to the nonverbal environment or to the referent, whatever it is that's being talked about. Um, and so what we found in that study is that indeed, if you were to look at kind of extended discourse, you observe a lot of kind of this rich nonverbal world um, that we know from a lot of other research is also very optimal for learning, including learning language. Yeah, it's, I think that's interesting because like, obviously um, there's observational learning um, and if a parent is looking at an object and talking about it, then we, I don't know, we, we have this tendency as humans to, to look at things that other people are looking at. Even I, 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 people still do it when they get older. Um, you're just in a car and then you just look out the right window like, other people in the car are gonna look at what you're looking at. And, and it's really interesting. Um, I guess it's good evolutionary because if there's something that's gonna attack me and my friend is looking at it, I'm obviously gonna look back and see it too. Um, so I think it's, I think, I guess, eye gaze is a big thing um, for infants in developing not just language, but a lot of other things. I guess, I guess that goes with observational learning so you, so the kids did this study in the lab, and then they also went home with it, right? Um, that was a different paper that we studied. Okay. Yeah. In, what in was the, that one about? Um, well, so um, first, let me just say that yeah, your point about um, observational learning and, and and looking at the things that other people are looking at. You know, we often use the term. Um, joint attention or shared attention to kind of refer to that, but yes, that's that's one of the one of the biggest drivers of of development. You know, a range of aspects about development, and um, yeah, it's a really fascinating phenomena, and one that I'm actually kind of really, really, I'm really interested uh, and and have a similar fascination um, with that idea. Is that it's so interesting that you know we have a tendency to look at the same thing. And what I'll say is that I don't think it, I don't think it's only the case that, you know, your passengers look at what you're looking at because you turn your head. I think there's also a sense of shared attention in the sense of you guys just are generally attracted to the same things, you know, for whatever reason, you know, a car that is, you know, parked along the highway, that's going to attract everyone's attention, whether or not someone looks at it or not, you know? Um, there's a sense in which, we, you know, the way we, we all look at, our, look at the world is not entirely independent, right? Um, um, and then you add, you add to the already non-independence and non-randomness, you add to that the fact that yeah, we want to follow what Aaron is looking at, you know, that even kind of shrinks the world even more, so to speak. If that makes any sense. Is there, do you know, I mean, I guess that, that, that's definitely true. Like if there's a car on the side of the road, everyone is looking at it. 
um, so I kind of thought of it as like almost as an, a reflex almost because it's almost I've, I've caught myself doing it a lot just if someone turns around I'm going to turn around and look what, at whatever they're looking at so I guess is it I guess it has to be a combination of both just like a reflex that we just naturally have with also just also just being inclined to look at the same things as other people yeah i mean that's yeah that's i think that's one certainly one way to to think about it um you know to what extent to what extent is it a reflex in the sense that you were kind of born automatically to do that is one thing versus is it a reflex that we've kind of learned over the course of our mm -hmm. developmental history to know that that's something you should you should do because well wherever your fellow human is looking is probably a useful thing to do right yeah <laughs> um, um but yes but you know whether whatever developmental history led to that behavior it is true that we, there are these kind of two levels there's the level of we might just base just generally be inclined to be attracted to look at the same thing um as well as there's this added level of like well if someone else is looking at it then i'm going to be looking at it too mm -hmm. and um as i said earlier you can imagine you can think about like the world as being like that and then we already have this shared inclination to look at only that amount of the world mm -hmm. and then add to that kind of the social process that kind of shrinks the world even more and and as a result you know our our, our world is like very very narrow um so i guess going back to that study where uh, yes you did it in the lab and then you Wait, so what was that study about? I forget. Um, um, the, so this study was about how kids learn words, right? How infants oh, learn right. words. And one of the bait, you know, and this I think is related to the, the question that we just touched on about like, what is it that we're attracted to in the world? In the study of early word learning, there is kind of this big philosophical puzzle uh, often referred to as the question of referential ambiguity, which is like whenever you hear a word, how does the kid know what that word refers to? Because they live in this world that's just so filled with information, how could you ever start to narrow down yeah. um, um, the possible reference? And what we did in that study um, was and you know, there's a lot of research that was kind of was built on that big philosophical question. And what we tried to do in that study was was ask the question of like, well, how how correct is that assumption to begin with? And so what we did is instead of start with the philosophical puzzle, what we did is we put these small head cameras on on these toddlers, you know. 15, 16 months old. And we just tried to see what the world looks like from their perspective. Yeah. Right. And what we found is that it turns out that the world actually looks nothing like the world of adults because toddlers are, are small, you know, they, they're, they're short, they live close <laughs> to the floor. 
they have these arms that aren't, you know, that length, but like are like that. Yeah. And so whenever they hold up a book, it like covers their whole, <laughs> it, it covers their whole field of view. And, and what we did is, you know, we painstakingly took these images from head cameras of kids and we kind of drew around all the objects that we saw. And what we found is that when you analyze kind of when parents said, oh, look, it's a motorcycle or, or you know, and they were playing or whatever. And, oh, look, it's a ball or kick that ball or, you know, uh, throw that ball this way. Lo and behold, you would observe that, like, there's one thing that just occupies a huge portion of the toddler's field of view. And more often than not, it tended to be the referent object. Um, and so for that study, you know, we were kind of, um, I guess that was the main point of that study is to kind of question, you know, and certainly there's kind of, I think certain aspects of the philosophical puzzle remain, but at least this is, it's, it's useful data to think about like, oh, you know, maybe we should start to think more about what the kid's experience is actually like, as opposed to assuming or taking it as, as an assumption that the kid's experience is similar to, to, to ours. Mm -hmm. So um, just, just a question, like for these um, experiments, how long do they usually last with these infants? Because I don't know, infants have a tendency to get fussy easily. They don't really have that long of an attention span. And if they're really in like more than in, in the same place for more than a certain amount of time, they kind of lose interest in whatever they're doing and kind of just want to chill or take a nap or something like that. So like how long do you like work with these infants for a period of time? Yeah, that's, that's a fair question. Um, and it is, um, it is, the answer is that it varies how long the studies are. Um, some of the studies that we described, for example, like with the infants and the number perception, those are very, very short studies. You know, that I would say are maybe like five minutes long, six minutes okay. long. Um, some of the studies where you're like bringing them into the laboratory and it's like an interaction with the parent um, where we use the head cameras, um, that tends to be, you know, we're able to kind of keep them going for like six minutes or 10 minutes. <laughs> um, um, and the problem there is not so much that they don't want to play. The problem is more so that, um, the problem is more so that they, they, you know, bat the head camera away. Mm, yeah. Um, but let me, Oh, never mind. Um, I was going to show you kind of um, our lab website, but um, there's UConn a or somewhere else. Yeah, at UConn, because this this gets to this uh, question um, where what what we've done at UConn is actually the issue you posed was one that I was really concerned about when we when we when i came to yukon and kind of built my lab here at yukon which was you know as you pointed out you know kids get kids fuss out um yeah. and you know how do we know that the five minute interaction that we're studying is really say representative 
of what their life is like in a much more naturalistic situation. And so at UConn, what we did is we built a laboratory that kind of looks like the Truman Show. I don't know if you saw that movie. It was a movie a while ago with Jim Carrey where he was just like videotaped all over the place. But um, um, so we have this room that's actually meant to, to you know, um, more of a home okay. field than like a laboratory field. Correct. And, and, and there are cameras positioned at various points in the room so that we can capture kind of all different, the interactions from various angles. And what I'll say is that for, from the data we're able to collect there, you know, we go on for like 40 minutes to an hour with these toddlers and, um, and they don't want to leave, you know, that we've had to kind of drag them away sometimes. Um, um, so it, it really depends on kind of the, the type of study that you do, the location of the study, and, and, the, and the research topic itself. Does, does the lab double as a childcare facility? Um, it does not. Um, <laughs> um, I'm sure you know, many, many, a, many a faculty and many a graduate students would love to have us you know, in, in the psych department, have us take care of their kids. But, um, yeah. But yeah, no, we, we, we keep it strictly for, uh, for science. So you talk about having your own lab at UConn. How, what was that like just as a researcher, as a psychologist, as a scientist, um, being able to have your own lab and kind of run your own um, research? Like what, I feel like that's kind of, a goal that a lot of um, scientists have is to one day have their own lab. So like, how was that for you when you actually finally did reach that goal, I guess? Yeah, um, I'll be honest, Aaron. I, it was, it, it, it was amazing. Um, you're right that like, you know, a lot of us go through graduate school and go through a long period of training and, and, you know, this is what we train for, right? We, we train for, um, you know, we go through like extended periods of, of being part of other labs and then finally to be able to kind of build your own lab and kind of, um, you know, work with students who are interested in your ideas. Um, it's, it was hugely rewarding. And um, I, even today, I feel like, um, I feel very blessed to be in this position. I feel very honored to kind of be given the the responsibility, you know, I feel like it's on us now to to make sure that we're producing good research and producing good good science. Um, and yeah, so amazingly rewarding. It's something. It's one of the things I enjoy most about my job is working with my lab. Um, and I, 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 even I, who you know, always had this as as a dream. At least once I started you know, working in, in, in science and going to graduate school, I always thought that this was like my goal. To finally get there, I, I feel like even I underestimated how much I enjoy it. So, um, yeah. you know, cool. yeah, it's, it's great. I have so to, how long have you had your lab? This is only year three. Well, this is year three of me at UConn, but honestly, this is only year two of the lab being fully built. 
Um, oh, okay. Actually, you know, our, our first research subjects came in around this time last year, um, and that was just like piloting. So um, the lab really only took off last summer. So what was, are you, were you working on any research before this outbreak, this pandemic? Um, yes, uh, we were. Um, we were doing a number of studies. Um, and, you know, fortunately for us, a lot of the research um, can kind of continue remotely in the sense that, you know, we collected a lot of data of, um, of observations of parent-child interactions. And so we're kind of sitting on, you know, terabytes worth of video that you know need to be transcribed need to be coded for the videos and and things like that so um there's work that we're able to do remotely um but you know it's obviously dis you know it's hugely disappointing because this year i had a really great crop of seniors um who are in the middle of their honors theses and in the middle of you know, their last semester in the lab, they had been in the lab for three or four semesters. Um, and this was really meant as kind of a culmination of their experience. And I was really sad for them that yeah. they couldn't kind of, you know, see their projects to an end. Um, um, so I guess to put it short, to put it, um, to say it shortly, is that you know the research can continue to go on we can continue to be productive it's you know more the loss for the research assistants who won't who will no, no longer be there next fall that i feel uh, bad for yeah how how big is your team my team is i would say about you know between 10 and 15 people you know and it's a mix between students and um, staff. So we have, I, I have two full-time um, lab managers who do an amazing job actually kind of, you know, they're, they're the ones on the ground um, mm -hmm. organizing the data collection, kind of working closely with, our, with, uh, with, the, with the students, um, overseeing, you know, data collection, data coding, um, recruitment of subjects and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, then, and then I have a great group of students who work with me. So you said you're talking about there's like just terabytes of video to go over. So how long would you say these experiments last from the experimental stage to actually being able to um, publish about it and go over what actually happened and do the statistical analysis on it to see if there are significant um, results to conclude something? Um, it varies uh, for the kind of research that we're kind of doing right now at UConn that involves data collection and then a long period of video coding and transcription. Those types of studies take a long time um, and and it tends to happen that it tends to be the case that like studies get published in bursts, right? So for example, in this kind of, in this kind of study where we're kind of observing naturalistic or semi-naturalistic observations 
and mm -hmm. studying components of the interactions, what we would, you know, what, what would happen is there would be like a period of data collection that might last, you know, a year or so or two years, but, you know, maybe because of what we're going through, it might last a little bit longer than that. And then there's like this period of analyzing that data. And then there's a period of publishing, but, but you might end up kind of publishing five, six, seven, ten papers based on various elements that you're studying, right? So it kind of maybe works out to being like on average, maybe, you know, you get, I don't know, one paper for every year of data collection of a specific thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, all of the papers get published at, you know, five, six, seven years down the line for this kind of data. For the kind of experimental methods that we do, that, you know, you do, um, the kind of infant studies we talked about at the beginning, you know, the time scale, time frame that there is much shorter because a lot of the bottleneck there is much more on the amount of kids you're collecting. But, you know, there's very little analysis that goes into, you know, the analysis goes very quickly. The, um, you know, there's not too much coding of the data um, because all of that actually happens online during the study. Um, there, the problem is more just making sure you have a, a large enough sample size. So it's kind of recruiting families and, and collecting enough data. But those studies, those experiments tend to go much shorter. So you obviously, also, you also teach at UConn, obviously, because I'm in your class. Um, That's right. But if you had to choose, would you do the same thing you're doing now, which is research and teaching, or would, would you go more in a path of just research or go towards another path of just teaching, if you could choose? Um, you know, there's a reason why I decided to stay, I, I decided to go to a place like UConn is because it, I feel like it's, it's one of those places that is the perfect balance between the teaching that you, you get to do as, as well as the rigorous research that you get to do. You know, I, I think that if I were, um, if I were only interested in the research part, then maybe what I would have done is seek out, say, a position at, you know, become a research assistant at like the National Institutes of Health, right? Because they have like a wing that studies child development and, and, um, you know, and behavior and things like that. Um, or maybe at, uh, at an independent institute that just does, does research. Um, likewise, you know, I think that a lot of academics go to smaller teaching schools that involve much more, or regional universities that don't have as much of a research infrastructure as a research university like UConn does. Um, but you know, I really want it. I really like them both. I mean, I, 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 I hope this comes across in my teaching, but I really enjoy lecturing. I really enjoy kind of introducing students to ideas in psychology um, um, and interacting with students, whether it be in the classroom or in my lab are, is things that I really get a lot of, um, I find really rewarding. Mm -hmm. So, I really wouldn't change a thing about kind of about where I am about about the level of 
you know, research and, and, and right. teaching that I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I think that's really cool because I don't know, I think some people, um, are definitely more geared towards the research side of their work, um, rather than teaching. Um, so I was just interested in what you were into personally. Um, but um, one thing that I've been thinking of lately is we've talked about this in class, just um, how important sleep is and um, in storing memory so if, um, and learning, I guess. Um, so kind of sleep kind of allows um, our brain to store memory better and to kind of open up more space for um, information to come in. Um, it's kind of like a sponge. Um, kind of lets us offload memory to the neocortex or where it needs to go, um, which allows us to bring in more information. Um, so, and, and you said that if you get like around le like less than six hours of sleep a night, it can be detrimental over time. Um, but you never said if it had to be continuous, six hours or seven hours of sleep. Um, so I guess, do you know if, it could be good to intermittent sleep for maybe like three, four hour naps intermittently throughout the day. Um, so as you learn something, you like take a nap for three hours and then you wake up, learn some more stuff, take another nap for three hours kind of to get the most out of what you learn. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question and um... I don't actually think I do. I don't know the the research on that. I'll be honest. Um, I can only assume that it is not equal in the sense that I think that you do need the that long night of sleep. Um, you know. Um, and and that's just I'll be I'll be honest that's just kind of my instinct and my, yeah, yeah. my sense of what of of what the research um, would suggest you know whether or not there's some some form of I mean the thing is right is that I think there are very few people who who probably sleep intermittently in a healthy way you know in the sense of like what leads some people to sleep intermittently might be you know, might be the result of like not being able to get a good amount of a, a long night of, of health, mm -hmm. healthy sleep. Yeah. Um, you know, whether or not technically speaking, is it possible to kind of like des design a sleep schedule that is somewhat intermittent and yet has all the benefits of, of actual sleep? That's, a, that's an interesting, I think, question. Um, but I'll be, I'll, I'll say this, Aaron, I, I would say that if I had to put my money on it, I think I'd, I'd be willing to bet that intermittent sleep is not as healthy as, as a long period of sleep. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that I learned that sleep helps with the storage of memory. I'm just saying you don't even have to really like have deep sleep or anything. It's just a period of rest, I guess. Um, cause I have classes from around 10 to 12. And then I have your class at 2.30. So I'm like, do I be productive and do work 
during this two hour block mm -hmm. of nothing or do I take a nap? And after I heard that lecture, I was like, well, I really only have one option here and that's to take yeah. a nap. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. No, I mean, and, um, and, and, you know, in psych, in intro to psych, really what we do is we just talk about kind of the benefits for, you know, cognitive abilities and things like that. But, but, you know, there are also health benefits to sleep. I think that there's, you know, really recent research suggests that, um, that in a way what the, what the brain does during sleep is it kind of, there's like this fluid that this, there's this cerebral, there's this spinal fluid that is able to kind of wash out the various toxins in the brain. Like if you, if you study it at like that level, what they find is that when you're, it's something like, I don't know if this is quite right, but it was, you know, something that was published just like a year or two ago, where what they found was that, you know, when the brain goes to sleep in a way, or while you're awake, what the brain does is there's just like a buildup of certain toxins, right? Mm -hmm. And when you start sleeping, what happens is that there's kind of a cerebral spinal fluid that goes into the brain and kind of washes out the various toxins. Um, and all of that stuff happens in the very early, you know, non-REM stages of sleep. Um, the same type of sleep that is actually really useful for memory and learning. Um, so, yeah, so there's just like a ton of research to suggest that, you know, sleep is healthy, not only for the kinds of things we talk about in class, but also just in terms of, you know, your biology. Yeah, I think I, um, I guess I apparently wake up a lot during um, REM because I have three or four dreams a week that I can remember. I'm, I might have them every day. Um, but I just, I think it's just really cool how like I'm able to look at that dream, at least for the first 10 minutes that I can remember the dream in the morning. Um, and then just like connect what I saw in the dream with whatever I was doing yesterday or whatever was on my mind yesterday. Um, I just think, I find dreams fascinating. Um, I find, I guess the more, I don't know, what is, I guess neuroscience is more focused on like the actual biology of the brain. Um, but I'm, I love just the connection between this part of the brain does this and we see more activity in this part of the brain whenever we do this certain task. Um, and just seeing those connections, I think it's really cool. And and we talked about at the beginning how like phrenology was like terrible, like um, a terrible idea and like totally wrong, but like it's not all wrong, you know, it, it has some rightness to it in that there are certain parts of the brain that um, does certain things. Um, and there's also this trend of, um, ventral pathways and dorsal pathways and how they kind of differ. Um, I'm in a bio class right now and I just was reading how um, the hypothalamus has, I think it's a ventral and dorsal stream. I think it controls for, um, for breathing, for circulation. Um, Sorry, it controls what? I think breathing. 
breathing. Oh, breathing. Yes, yes. Yeah. And how? At first, I, I thought you said reading, and I was no, like, no, no, breathing. You that the hypothalamus is is controlling reading. Is that? <laughs> yeah. No, not reading. Um, yes, I'm sorry. Breathing. It's the medulla. The medulla. The medulla has um, like a, I think it has a ventral and dorsal stream that kind of correlate with either inhaling or exhaling and the pons kind of um, um, refines those signals to make breathing more fluid rather than just sudden breathing and sudden exhaling. Um, but like there's this, and you see it everywhere in biology, there's just, and in science period, I guess, in the various fields, there's these trends that you start to see between ventral and dorsal, they have different functions. And then, I don't know, in biology, there's a, correlation between the structure of something and like the function of it. Um, I think once you start picking up on these trends, you can more easily make better questions and ask better questions and come up with better hypotheses to test. Um, so I guess, do you, I, I'm, I'm assuming you also see these trends. So I guess what are some of the, what are some trends just off the top of your head that you can think of that kind of like, oh, that's cool to think about, that interests you? Oh, um, yeah, uh, I mean, oh, wh where to begin? Um, um, do you, um, do you mean specifically um, linked to um, the biological bases, or do you mean just, just any correlation that you yourself um, find interesting, mm. kind of passionate about? Well, you know, I mean, I think a lot of the a lot of the research that we do is. Um, you know, a lot of the research I do is focused on early language development. And um, I think that I'll, I'll, I'll say just maybe two things that I think I'm kind yeah. of really interested in. Um, one is how, how difficult behavioral changes, um, meaning, you know, I think that we find, for example, that we can identify um, correlations between, say, we have a good sense from correlational data about, you know, what seems to be correlated with good outcomes in terms of learning outcomes, in terms of language development, in terms of cognitive development, and so on. And um, and, and, you know, from those correlations and maybe from experimental studies that you might do or from experiments that you might create, some of the ones that we discussed today, um, you can kind of say, I, I, know what, I know what could be useful for this kid who's like having struggle mm. or who's struggling to learn. Um, because these experiments show it and these correlations and these individual differences show it. It's so, it's really difficult to translate that into useful outcomes 
in the sense that, you know, it is, it's very difficult to translate what we learn into something that we can then kind of observe and make and create meaningful differences. Um, and so how to do that, how to take that kind of translation from the laboratory to useful outcomes is, is a big challenge. And so understanding why that's the case, is it something about, is it, is it about the translation part of it? Is it about, you know, how we do things in the laboratory setting versus what actually happens in the real world? Um, is it, you know, what accounts for that disconnect is something, is one question that like always bugs me, you know? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I don't think it's specific to my line of area of research, right? I think that, look, clinical trials with medicine are, are challenging. Um, even though you might be able to study it in a small group, whether or not it can scale to the masses, you know, that's a big question. Um, on a different note, on, a, on a maybe a much more kind of specific theoretical note, is um, I've, you know, in, in studying the kind of interactions that I study, um, I've been more and more interested in how, in studying the parent perspective of these interactions rather than the kid perspective, um, we often talk about learning as something where, you know, the kid is trying to learn something about the world and that they're exposed to this environment that is unpredictable in certain ways and that they need to kind of figure out aspects about the world, right? That's one approach. But if you really look at, you know, and this I think touches on some various things that we've talked about. If, we, if you really think about what kids are exposed to and the kind of interactions that they're in, you know, it's just as much driven by the parent and the, their caregivers trying to interpret the world for the kid. And I think that that's a really interesting phenomena about kind of how the parents are interpreting the world of the kid and how does that change the parent behavior because ultimately the kids are in turn learning from that parent behavior, right? So yeah. if we want to kind of understand the world of the kid, in a way you need to understand how adults interpret kids and therefore create the world for them. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Um, one last thing that I wanted to touch on um, was um, you showed us that amazing video of those twins um, interacting with each other. Um, I have I have brothers that are identical twins, so oh. I've, seen it, I've seen it happen before. Um, they they seem like they're speaking gibberish, but they they also seem like they know exactly what each one is talking about. So do you think they actually do like know what they're talking about to each other or are they just kind of messing with each other and playing around yeah so um i i think i think i think that there's a sense in which twins do have a very good sense of each other you know that can almost see appear as if it's like some type of tele you know telepathic abilities 
Um, but I'll be honest, I don't, I don't, I think that this could be actually much, the phenomena is in a way much more like what you described earlier about shared attention. And that, and that the fact is, well, these twins, you know, have so such similar lives, have such similar biology, are at such similar stages in development that, you know, what one per, one what one of them what one of your siblings might be talking about just might happen to also be the thing that the other one is interested in and thinking about as well at the same time so in a way in a way like them being able to read each other is almost perhaps as much a as much epiphenomenal to the fact that they're just both attracted to the same things as it is like them actually kind of reading each other's mind, you know? And then if you add to the, if you add, if you add to the, to that basic layer of them kind of agreeing with each other and like attending to the same things. And what I would also say is to your last question about like, what is it that I find fascinating? That's actually another thing that I find fascinating, that whole idea of shared attention in absence of actually interactions is something that I find generally, genuinely very, very interesting. Anyway, if you add to that basic shared attention and shared interests, this additional ability of you know, having some basic understanding of how to engage in conversations, my God, does it appear as if they do yeah. um, you know, understand what each other is talking about. It's, it's, it's cool, it's cool. And, um, that's one thing I love about your lectures is um, the videos that you show us. And just, I just find them so fascinating and interesting. Great, great. That's great to hear. Yeah. Um, so did you want to end on something? Um, you said you had a note or something that you wanted to end on? Oh, no. Actually, the, the note was to, to end um, on a question you asked earlier about the infants counting. Um, so no, I, I didn't have anything planned, but I, but I would just say, um, okay. so you know, I, I really feel for you guys not being able to be on campus and I know it's, I know it's hard for, for you, um, and for your fellow students and, um, and yeah, I, I, I just, just know that this will all be over at some point and, and we'll be all back on campus and, and having fun in class together and, and and learning together again. And um, yeah, I just want to kind of wish you and, and your fellow students all the best. Yeah, so in the textbook, it kind of touched on um, learning, like online learning versus um, in-person learning. It was very brief. Um, right. So do, do you know of anything that would, like the differences that come with online learning versus in-person learning? Um, my sense is that, you know, the, the, and it's understandable how, how there is just very little, right? Because the shift to online learning has really only happened over the course of the past few years. And as I mentioned earlier about the time from doing the studies to the time things get published, yeah. there's usually this delay. Um, you know, based on what I've seen out there, I think there's, it's, it, it is 
a good bet to assume that some of the things you know help in regular learning are gonna also be helpful in online learning systems, right? The basic idea of the testing effect and test, test enhanced learning, you know, like that's gonna be something that is useful for, um, useful in online learning just as much as, as it is in in-person learning. Um, the idea of, of you know, um, what was I going to say? Kind of um, distributed learning, right? That you're not just kind of cramming everything mm, yeah. on towards the end, but actually kind of learning things little bit by little bit, that that's something um, to do as well. You know, it's, it, it is interesting that, you know, with online learning, I mean, one thing, right, is that you experience that you have more of a, say in when you're learning and so you and where you're and, learning what's that and where you're learning and where you're learning um because so, we talked you know, about how if you're in the same i guess even like a mental and emotional um situation or emotional um what's the word state yeah, emotional state or in the same environment, then you have better ability to bring out those memories associated with where you learned. That's right. And you know, that might not be the case if you're if you're having to learn stuff in the library, but taking the exam in um, in the testing center. And likewise, right, you know, you might be able to do things where you're learning things after hopefully a healthy night of sleep and you know because you're at home and and you're you're not as as much drawn to the to the you know late night social events that you might have in college <laughs> maybe you're more inclined to get a better night of sleep and and really prepare the hippocampus for learning you know so there's probably some uh, honestly some pros obviously there are there are cons too right because Although hanging out with friends in the dorm late at night might lead to less sleep, there might be social benefits to that and social emotional benefits to that that might um, that might be lost in online learning settings. So you know, yeah, pros and cons. Things might wash out. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you for taking time out of your day to um, Zoom me. That's the new thing now. Zoom everyone. Right. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you about uh, this kind of stuff. I think, don't tell my other professors, but psychology right now is my favorite class. That uh, is great to hear. Yeah. Um, so thank you for getting me interested in it. Um, I think it's a fascinating field. Um, and I took sociology last year. And I thought, oh, sociology is really cool. Like, what can be better than sociology? Well, okay. psychology. Um, great. Great. But yeah. Um, so thank you. Um, for taking your time out and spending that with me, um, talking to me about these various um, topics. Um, and I hope that everything is okay at home with this situation and that, I don't know, teaching isn't too stressful in this new setting of recording yourself, these lectures and then posting them. And um, I hope your research can continue hopefully in the summer, whenever that starts up again. 
Yeah, um, and thanks, Aaron. Um, I, I enjoyed talking uh, a lot, and I also, um, you know, appreciate what you said about the class and and genuinely, you know, I, I, some of the things that I enjoy most about the most about class and teaching in person are the things where you know you coming up at the end of the class with with questions about you know eye dominance and things like that. Those are things that you know us professors really enjoy. That you know to hear you guys really engaging with the material and, and thinking about things that, you know, we ne didn't necessarily think about. So, um, yeah, thanks. And I enjoyed this a lot. Yeah, likewise. Um, I know you have some meetings to get to, so I'll let you get to it. Okay. Take care. Right. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Bye.